Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Gaudi Mitzvah's 22 podcast, both on YouTube video and Podbean podcast, which you can get on uh, Spotify, Apple. Well, not yeah, Spotify, Apple and uh, Amazon Music. We're having a little trouble with Google, but we'll get there. Uh, Google is the Antichrist, so maybe I don't want to be on Google. Uh, but anyway, I'm very excited today. I have not only a guest, but uh, someone who's been like a longtime Facebook friend who I finally met for the first time uh, at David L. Schindler's funeral, uh, Mr. Connor Dugan, Esquire, lawyer uh, from uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, who's mainly a lawyer in, a, in in appellate litigation. I'm not even certain what that means, but I asked him before we went on, how do you want to be described? He says, well, mainly appellate litigation. So there you have. Are you originally from Grand Rapids, Connor? I grew up here. I was actually born in D.C., uh, my dad was uh, finishing up a stint in the Navy. So, uh, and my mom did not like the Navy uh, <coughs> nurses. So I was born at Walter Reed when it was still in, in the district. So, but we moved oh, to Michigan wow. when I was three and Grand Rapids when I was five. So this is, this really is home. And where did you go to law school? I went to Notre Dame law school. Oh, that's right. I knew that yeah. too. I'm getting yeah. so forgetful in my, in my dotage. Okay. Well, that's great. And you're married to your lovely wife who I met as well, Laurel, yeah, Laurel and, and then four kids, four Laurel children. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So no, okay, very good. Well, um, like I said, I longtime Facebook friends. We finally met finally for the first yeah. time in person at the funeral of Dr. David L. Schindler, uh, which was now was that in November, December? It's all I think fading. It was December first or second, is, is my yeah, yeah. It was very yeah. very early December, I do believe, and and. What 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 that reminds me of now, I mean, I was just in Rome for the funeral of Pope Benedict. And of course, we've just heard of the passing of Cardinal Pell. So it just seems like over the past month, month and a half, it's just been a series of these giants in the church mm. uh, that have been passing away. So uh, I, I do want to begin with, since both of us knew and loved David L. Schindler with just sort of a very uh, a sort of basic reflection on why, number one, what did Schindler mean to you and why do you think he was important intellectually in, in the Catholic intellectual landscape? Yeah. In terms of what he meant to me, he was simply just an incredibly dear friend. And as I have looked at the reflections since his passing, I realized that there were hundreds if not thousands of people in the same position he, he had this incredible capacity to sort of be present to so many different people and he was uh, was to me we met uh, i don't know if you know uh, i know john mccarthy who's the dean of philosophy oh, yeah. at C uh, john's 50th birthday party which i think i was only invited to because i thought i knew how to make drinks uh, i was the bartender i <laughs> had a cheat sheet but David came in uh, halfway through. He had been uh, snuck out to a bar to watch the first half of the Notre Dame game, and we ended up sitting next to each other. And that began a friendship um, that you know lasted until his passing. Uh, it, we really became close when when I was facing a similar heart surgery that he had had, and and he kind of guided me in that. But in terms of what he meant, he helped me see reality better. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Rachel Coleman uh, had a beautiful, actually in your blog, a, a reflection where yeah. he had this a tendency to say something and you'd say, my gosh, that's so obvious. But then you'd realize it hadn't been obvious, but it, 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 it because you were so caught up 
in the categories that you've been formed in. And he could help you step outside of that. And he just helped me see things in, in a way like uh, just, uh, for instance, there's a small thing like neutrality, that nothing is neutral. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that he would always talk about there's a Catholic way of holding a pen, which doesn't mean that it would look different from the outside, but it is different from the inside. And none of this stuff was an abstraction for him. I mean, this is I, I, I told a little story of this in a reflection I wrote about him, but I, I brought a book to him to sign for a priest friend who was doing his uh, license um, and was going to look at David's work. And instead of just quickly signing it, you know, David took a moment to ponder. It just, just, just paused. I mean, he was intentional yeah. about what he was going to say, and that, yeah. that sort of, I think, typifies the way he approached everything. And and also, the, it's come up when you've talked about. I mean, gosh, the guy was funny. Oh, I mean, just oh, uh, this, yes. We 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 had him over when we were moving from D.C. He came over. Um, I don't know if you know. Uh, Clinton Frozier, another. Uh, I know guy, Clinton. Clinton. Yeah, Clinton. Clinton was coming over, and so was Stella Schindler. And we we're having this. We we're going to have cocktails and stuff. And we were getting ready to move back to Grand Rapids, and we had put stuff outside to, um, to to to, uh, to for free for people to take away. And he came in, and he saw that it was still out there. I think it was a telephone or something. He said, "You guys are doing it wrong. You need to put a, a price on it. Go put twenty bucks on it. It'll be gone within fifteen minutes." Sure. Sure enough, well, <laughs> put, the, put the price tag on. We looked out 10, 15 minutes later, it was gone. Uh, uh, because we had we had actually ascribed a value to it. But I mean, it just there were there were just so many things where he could just, you know, just you're almost crying, laughing. Um, oh, he, because he yeah. yeah. Wicked, wicked sense along those lines. I mean, on my blog after his death, and I think you even shared it on Facebook, the hysterical story you know i was at the academy of catholic theology conference in washington dc one year and uh you know i i just a uh, pure confession here i actually dislike academic conferences very much uh and i only uh, i don't think you needed to confess that i think that comes through in your writing just <laughs> well let's put it this way i don't like listening to hour and a half long lectures where a professor actually reads from a paper to you. And yeah. I'm guilty of the same. That's what you do yeah. for yeah. the sake of precision. You go and read some article that you've written and and OK, it, it sometimes is exciting and it's innovative and it's interesting. Sometimes it's just deadly dull. And I, I, I go to the conferences because I like the networking. I like to yeah. meet with people and talk with, you know, that's the way all conferences are in almost any discipline. I'm sure it's true of legal. Yeah, the same in the law. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sitting way in the back just in case I fall asleep. And uh, Schindler, David Schindler comes in late and he surveys the room. He sees all the chairs are full, except for like two or three next to me clear in the back. And he sort of nods at me and points his finger and with big grin on his face, comes waddling over and he sits down next to me. And, you know, we exchange a few pleasantries and then we both sit there and we're listening to this very, very dry talk uh, from a very nice, intelligent guy. I don't mean to disparage him. Thomist, Thomist. And, you know, making all these fine Thomistic distinctions and distinctions and distinctions. And Schindler falls asleep. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, this is kind of cute in its own way. You know, he's fallen asleep. But then he starts snoring very loudly. Uh, and so I think, well, this is no good. So I better wake him up. So I nudge him with my elbow and he kind of 
rouses himself and he looks over at me with this big grin on his face. And in case, you know, people are playing this in the car and their kids are in the back seat or something, I don't want to. It was colorful language, but but he leans over to me and he says, man, this is some real boring stuff, isn't it? <laughs> and, and and I I said and whispering, obviously, and I said, yeah. And he goes, nothing this boring can be true. <laughs> <laughs> And I that has uh, that that story has always remained. And, you know, that's, I'm taking up too much time and telling the story, no, but no, it's, it's just it's story. build. It's just sort of building upon your narrative of the great sense of humor and lightheartedness that David Schindler had. And, and it only added to his charm because he was obviously a man of profound, brilliant unparalleled intellect. I mean, I wish I had one tenth of his intellect. Yeah. Uh, and yet that was coupled with humility, charm, humor, self-deprecation, um, and just an ability to really disarm you with with his uh, with his sort of everydayness and normal. Well, and I think childlikeness, right? I mean, yeah, I think yeah, this is yeah. something that's been a theme in the several of the, your recent podcasts. And unless you're like this child, I mean, he he had that wonder and yeah, uh, yeah. Not, not it wasn't a naivete, but sort of a, an ability to just take delight uh, in all of creation. Yeah. Uh, and I saw we, we watched a lot of Notre Dame football games together. And I'll tell you, I mean, it's uh, at that point he was in his, his 60s and jumping off the couch, you know, you know, just coming, giving me a high five and is as giddy as a schoolboy. Uh, and I, you know, I think, and I, there are other, other examples I've heard people share of that kind of stuff. And, and yeah, obviously, yeah. uh, Dave Jr. had that beautiful line at the beginning of his talk at the reception afterwards about it. You can tell a lot about a man by the way he opens a cereal box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just that he would just, you know, he just, you know, well, you know, that was, that was doubly hysterical for me because. There is there is a saying in the chap household uh, that I have uh, donut box syndrome. My daughter, <laughs> my daughter, Kelsey coined yeah. Larry Chap's donut box syndrome. By that, we used to buy this like Entenmann's donuts or Hostess mm -hmm. donuts. And I was pathologically incapable of opening the donut box properly, which just end up ripping the thing to shreds and you know, just this mangled open donut box. And and so when David C. Schindler began his sort of eulogy at the reception by saying you could tell a lot of man, but by the way, he opens a cereal box. I just thought, there you go. I have yeah. something, at least one thing in common with the great, late, great David yeah. L. Schindler, uh, an impatient well, so, modern package toot your horn but i mean something i see similar is again it's not like this has to be real about real life yeah um yeah. and he, you know yeah. one of the things i thought about david is he I mean he like suffered this stuff profoundly it wasn't like these were uh, the question i mean the for his you know with the whole time he was at jp2 i mean i think he he well even before that when he was at notre dame misunderstood by many in the church um, yes, and, and yes, seeing yes. and seeing sort of the superficiality in the church and and uh, he suffered that. And I know he suffered greatly in recent years, too. And so, you know, I think I think the second part of your question is sort of what he meant. You know, at first was what he meant to be personal. Well, OK, yeah. So we're through that. Yeah. But now what what was his intellectual legacy? I mean, because yeah. we all know interesting, charming, right. saintly, virtuous people that have had an impact in our lives. But yeah. the reason why uh, 
uh, that is, like I said, even more charming in his case is because he was also uh, a giant of an of an intellect. So yeah. what would you what would you say uh, in terms of, you know, what, what the viewers maybe can take away from this or the listeners? Uh, what what is his intellectual legacy? Why? Why was he theologically and philosophically important and remain so? Yeah, well, I think he thought things, uh, you know, down to their roots, and so he, yes, he, he, you know, there, there, I, there are a number of different things, and some of them will connect to Benedict. But I think one was his sense of all being as gift, uh, that he, uh, he, he had this, and it's maybe Chestertonian in a sense that everything is given to us. Um, and he, this is a place he profoundly shaped me, but I think it's it, where he shapes sort of thinking is that receptivity is not passivity. And we first image right. uh, God as receptive, not as active creators. And, and that may seem like a subtle thing, but it's, it's a profound thing and it makes all the difference, I think. So yeah. that, that we, that we receive um, the gift of our being in our life. Um, from God, who is a community, right? And that we're never, we're born into a community. It's that we're never this abstraction, this individual that's right. separate. We're not monads. Yeah. And, you know, the, again, when you say it, so, well, that makes sense, but it's so counter to the, the the sort of the liberal narrative that we've been fed as our baby's milk. Um, sort of the individual goes and makes himself and it enters into a social context. So I think there's that. There was also, I think in later years, he really did a lot of work on the memory of God and amnesis um, and, and sort of connecting to those themes in Pope Benedict's work. And I think that he, you know, the, the title of that, the book from the nineties, heart of the world center of the church, he understood that, what Christians need to be today is at, at the heart of the world, helping people to remember God. But in this, and I've been thinking about this. I went and read the the beautiful essay that you have pointed out several times, the new pagans in the church from 1958 by yes. Benedict. And there are a lot of, I think, similarities there between what Benedict yes. is saying and what, what Schindler did in terms of trying to reawaken uh, people to the memory of God. Um, yes. That that is the most fundamental thing before projects of uh, questions of morals and questions of um, uh, structures. <clears throat> it's it's it has to be a witness to to that profound presence of God in the world, which people have forgotten. Um, yes, yeah, I, I think too that he he really helped. I mean, he was before, and, and this isn't to criticize. They're, they're great, you know. Denine's doing great work, but he he was doing he was sort of setting the groundwork in terms of understanding the the internal logic of America and and liberalism in general, and helping to sort of show us uh, that you know that the, we the ha it has the seeds of its own destruction. That there are these great. I mean, he would always praise sort of the genuine the genuine insights of modernity. Uh, well, at the same time, sort of showing here are the things that are sort of sowing its own destruction. And I, I, you know, I think his critique of sort of the Whig uh, Thomism project, where we, you know, America can we can just kind of add some some Catholicism to this and, and baptize yeah. it, and this is yeah. all compatible. I think he really showed that that's that's just not true. At least, at least in my eyes, it, he convinced me 
because I probably was um, more uh, tending towards the neocon positions, and and I think he he showed that that there were some real fundamental mistakes there. Yeah, this is the great debate that's sort of raging in in sort of Catholic uh, political theory circles, if you if you want to call it that. Uh, you know, the, the whole issue of integralism, soft integralism, liberalism, all these isms uh, ascribed yeah. to the political domain. And you've got Deneen and you've got Hanby and Schindler and then the neo, the first things neocon crowd, uh, uh, the Murray, the John Courtney Murray. I, so, yeah, this is an ongoing debate. And therefore, I think you're absolutely right to locate Schindler's uh, profound significance in this debate in in that his articulation of a Christological anthropology uh, gives us the proper theological metaphysical understanding of human freedom. Now, a lot of Schindler's notions in in this regard uh, flow out of his Trinitarian theology of uh, receptivity gift and in his Christology, and he gets so much of this from Hans Urs von Balthasar mm. as well, Balthasar's Christology, Balthasar's Trinitarian theology, and philosophers like, you know, Ferdinand Ulrich and people like this. Uh, and he has translated all of that into a critique of American political liberalism, uh, which he views really as a Lockean project. Mm. And he does not view that as a favorable or good thing at all. Uh, and I know my colleague uh, Rodney Hauser, who I wish was here today, I hope he's listening, uh, would agree that this Lockean project is not a good thing at all. And and so when you said Schindler suffered, I think this is what he suffered more than anything, where he was a constant critique of the notion, the the fundamental anthropology that undergirds the American political project, both in the, its constitutional foundations and then flowing out of that into modern culture. And certainly today on steroids, this mm. notion of freedom as this neutral tabula rasa, where I simply right. choose amongst all these sorts of data point choices that reality tosses at me, like I'm some sort of you know, computer sifting through data and okay, I choose this and I choose that. And, and, and the choices then are, they, they influence me and are constitutive uh, post facto of who I am. But the notion of freedom to begin with is this neutral substrate is deeply right. flawed uh, because that then allows you to view the public square as also a kind of value neutral uh, value neutral domain. But anyway, I, I'm getting way too, uh, way too technical in this. Well, well here, maybe a practical example of how I appropriated that, that, uh, that thinking. I was once at a, um, a, uh, front porch Republic conference and, oh, yeah. um, I, I, my presentation wasn't important, but then there was a question and answer uh, period. And the person who presented with me was talking about uh, Holland, Michigan is in Saugatuck, Michigan, one being very or at least traditionally conservative, one more liberal. And he said, well, can't we have a localism that allows Holland to be Holland and Saugatuck to be Saugatuck? And there was someone in the audience who said, well, I'm worried if we let Holland be Holland, the public schools will become religious. And I said, the public schools are already religious. Yes. This guy had no idea what I was talking about, but for That's me right. that was taking what what you know that there was there's already an orientation towards certain truths in a public school. It's not new that it's That's that right. it has made certain decisions and and or, or given certain answers about the human person, and yeah. uh, 
but people, yeah. So that I think he suffered going back to Schindler. He suffered because it just it were, people are so dumb in some sense. They just can't. They can't, I think partly because there's there's something maybe they they think freeing in having the tableau laza that yeah, I can just yeah. sort of choose these things. But yeah, but yeah, there's, ab absolutely it's a, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. All states are confessional. All states are integralist. There's no such thing as a value neutral state or a state without some notion of the good, which is yeah. therefore an implicit theology, an implicit metaphysic. Right. And so you're absolutely right. Well, the reason why people don't get this sort of thing is because their their definition of religion is church and sacraments and incense and creeds. And it's in a building and you go there on Sundays yeah. and, and, and that's religion. Uh, and obviously the definition of religion is extremely, uh, you know, a difficult thing to pin, right. pin down. But if you want to just go with a sort of broad based sociological functionalist view of religion is that's that thing which defines, as Tillich would say, your ultimate concern, uh, then, yeah, our public schools are riddled with with right. ideology. Let's, let's just even throw out religion. It's riddled with ideology. Yeah. It's riddled with unsubstantiatable philosophical presuppositions about value and the good. And so let's take, for example, and, and I don't want to get too far off topic. Yeah. The fact, OK, you've got separation of church and state, so you can't even have the slightest hint of religion in the public schools. And the reason for that is, of course, well, religion pertains to the realm of conscience and it's contentious and it's divisive. And we don't want people uh, having their consciences violated if the school gets the religion wrong. And yet, our public schools don't don't think blink twice about teaching values in the area, say, of human sexuality, uh, racial relations, transgenderism, all these sorts of things. Even those those things are also value related, contentious, divisive, pertain to the realm of conscience. And if you have a conscience qualm with any of the things that are being presented in the public schools, you're basically told to take a hike and shut up, okay. yeah. uh, you know, so. My point is that by excluding religion because it's contentious, what 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 our society tells us is religion is singularly dangerous. Religion is singularly violence prone, and that's why it can't be in a school. That's the real reason, because it's dangerous, uh, whereas these other things are not dangerous. The, the, the thing that it's contentious and it's related to conscience yeah. is a lot of BS. It just has to do with the fact that our society from day one has viewed Religion in the public domain has a potentially very dangerous thing, but and 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 maybe with good reason we sometimes think those ways. But anyway, I, I'm off topic, and I'm well. And I, I would just go off topic a little. There's another piece of that is that religion is considered irrational, and that maybe yeah, ties yeah. us back to yes, the Schindler and 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 Benedict in terms of like reason purifying faith and faith pure, purifying reason. I mean, and sometimes the church plays into this. I mean, I understand we have to play the game in certain ways with the religious liberty uh, legal fights, but we all we concede from the front end that the, the, the something like contraception is here. Well, that's a religious belief. Well, no, that's that's yeah, something yeah. if you ponder sort of the nature of the human body, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. what 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 love is. Uh, it's 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 sort of it it. It, it's the it's the logic of that that flows out of that. And yet we we automatically cabinet as a, this is sort of our religious belief. And I don't think we do ourselves justice. Uh, oh, that's true. Play. Yeah. And just to be clear, I am not an advocate of and neither was David Schindler 
uh, of a hard integralism. I'm not arguing for a return to confessional states. And and in a lot of ways, given the religious status of most people in our culture these days, I'm actually really happy that they're not teaching about religion in public schools. Uh, You know, uh, so I I don't I don't want to wax all medieval here and say, let's bring back you know, let's let's bring back, you know, concordats and the union of throne and altar and all that sort of thing. But simply pointing out that these are complex questions and to bring it back to David Schindler and Benedict, so much, you know, so much is downstream of culture. Let's just put it that way. Politics is very much downstream of culture. And so what David Schindler and Benedict and, and Balthazar and John Paul and all these guys were about was where is God in the culture? And so that's why, you know, Benedict and John Paul in particular were so focused on this idea of the eclipse of God yeah. in modernity, that, that this is the single most significant cultural fact of our time, that God has been erased. And, and we don't mean there's no prayers in the public schools anymore. No, no. Right. Erased from our consciousness. In my blogs, I refer to this as the nullification of God. Uh, the, the nullification of God as part of the really real. And so yeah. that goes back to what you said at the beginning where Schindler said there's even a Catholic way to hold a pen, not externally, but internally. And, yeah. you know, so what he meant by that was there you you have to understand that to be a Catholic is a totalizing thing that involves the complete transformation of how you view everything, that it simply cannot be a lifestyle accessory. Uh, a, a sort of add-on to the rest of your bourgeois existence. And so what Schindler was so good at was getting to the metaphysical roots of the malaise of our culture. Uh, what are all the consequences that flow from the effacing the eclipse of God in our culture? I think yeah. that uh, that in a lot of ways is, is one of his most profound legacies is the development of this metaphysic of of gift reception and participation uh, that does not allow us to evade the God question. Yeah, yeah, no, and and it's I'm glad you brought up uh, sort of the bourgeois Christianity or just uh, yeah uh, because I think that was one of the things that that Schindler was so good at attacking and something Balthazar. This is an experience I recently had with a I'm in a reading group with three other lawyers and we read the moment of Christian witness. Um, I had never read that by Balthazar, but I'd read a lot of other Balthazar. My my friends had not read a lot, and sometimes they had been, um, you know, they had they heard heard certain narratives, especially about Dare We Hope, and things like that. Oh yeah, and they were blown away because you read that book, and and it is bracing stuff. I mean, Balthazar is the anti-bourgeois. Uh, oh, absolutely. Theologian. And you and, and it, it was it was beautiful as we talked about it. I mean, we. We all sat there sort of thinking, oh, my gosh, like I, I am I'm a pathetic Christian compared to what he's set, setting out here. Well, I'm glad you brought this book up because it allows me to plug my I have a new book coming out with Ignatius Press in oh, public couple months. It's called Confessions of a Catholic Worker, Our Moment of Christian Witness. And at least a couple of the chapters uh, in the book are devoted to a representation of Balthazar's book. Yeah. Translated into English, the moment of Christian witness in German, Cordula oder der Ernstfall. And the Ernstfall, uh, yeah. Ernstfall is a German word that simply means a moment of crisis, a moment of decision yeah. in the midst of crisis. 
uh, and and of course he pertains he applies that to the faith. And of course, throughout that book, I mean, Balthazar insists that the fundamental structure, and this goes to Schindler, it goes to John Paul, it goes to Benedict. Okay, the fundamental structure of Christian existence is cruciform. Mm, it's yes. cruciform. And unless you are leading a cruciform existence, then you need to doubt whether or not you are leading a Christian existence. So you're absolutely yeah. correct. I mean, people tend to focus. One of the reasons the reason why I wanted to represent this book, and I'm so glad you brought it up, is that yeah. uh, it, it has been when it first came out, it was routinely trashed in the academic world as this highly polemical work because he does clearly go oh, after at the Ka end there. He goes after yeah. Rahner. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, he goes after Karl Rahner's anonymous Christianity. And I actually do think that his attack on Rahner's anonymous Christianity is a bit unfair. I do. I think it's a bit unfair. Uh, I, I think it's a bit of a caricature of, of Rahner's actual position. But all that being said, you know, I think that's very downwind, uh, you know, downstream of the main part of the book, which is, the, you know, it's a short book, right. but it's profound. And the whole first several chapters before you get to the Rahner stuff is really about how you cannot be a Christian, especially in the modern world. And this has become my mantra in my blog post, everything I write. Modernity forces upon us a choice. This is Balthazar's point, Benedict's point, David Schindler's point. Modernity imposes upon us an unavoidable choice. And the decision not to choose is, in fact, a choice. Right. OK. And I, you know, C.S. Lewis uses the famous analogy of the egg, you know, that we are all spiritually like an egg. You either have to hatch or you're going to go bad. There's no stasis. There's no standing still anymore. Bourgeois Christianity was an attempt to stand still. OK, it, it yeah. and, and from Christopher Dawson on through all the resource month thinkers from Bernanos, Moriac, literary figures on up to John Paul Benedict Schindler, you know, and the rest. Bourgeois Christianity is dead and, and it's, it's going to be even deader in the future. Decisional Christianity and fall of Christianity is upon us. So anyway, thank you for bringing up that book because no, you gave me it. You gave yeah. me a chance to go on a little riff here, a little rant, well, I'm a little champion. That, rant. And I know uh, maybe that'll be the next book we'll read in that group when it comes out. We uh, we enjoy right now we're reading DC's book, uh, The Politics of the Real, which is an oh, incredible what book, which you, book. Yeah, which you re reviewed at Catholic World Report. But, oh, I uh, did. Yeah, didn't I? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah. And uh, I also discussed it with David Schindler on one of these podcasts. You did, yeah. And I think was Hamby. I think Hamby may have been on that one. I can't remember for sure, but uh he um, was and Hauser, the the scoundrel, was yeah. was was there as well. And I was happy to present it because, of course, uh, D.C. Schindler, the younger, uh, is accused of being an integralist and all the you know the hard integralism yeah. and stuff. Any any and this so let's bring this back to, to Schindler again, and then, and then yeah. I want to kind of move on to a few other few other things. But the interesting thing is this: is one of the problems with uh, political liberalism democratic secular liberalism as we currently live in it is it not only has this sort of hegemonic hold on us culturally and politically but for those reasons it has a hegemonic control over us in our imaginative capacity yes, yes. okay so we have a hard time imagining well what sort of a different order so uh could we have so any diagnostic criticism from the Christian metaphysical position, as both Schindler's do and Hanby and others, Denise, any sort of diagnostic in that regard that is hypercritical 
of, of liberalism as corrosively destructive to the, to the realm of the spirit in general and Christianity in particular is immediately, immediately thrown into the mosh pit of integralism and, yeah. and, yeah, and, and, and consigned to the flames of hell. Oh, you, you, as if those are our only two alternatives and, and, you know, either this hard medieval integralism with burnings at the stake and, you know, banned books and all that crap and, and, or, modern secular political liberalism and that's a result of the the paucity of our imagination that we can't impoverished it's impoverished and we can't think outside of the confines of these narrow and and i think that's the value of dc schindler's book the politics of the real is that and then also and then i'm going to turn it over to you um this also leads to one of the most annoying questions of all that people like you and me and the Schindlers and stuff who engage in these kinds of critiques of liberalism, the most annoying question of all. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, what's your what's your solution to the political order? I don't have one. And that's the damn point, right? I guess I should stop swearing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've said crap and damn now, so I, I should not do that. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 I have no idea what what a post liberal political i don't even know what post-liberal means i'm not even certain i even know what liberal means anymore all, all i know is our society is broken and, yeah. and 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 i think we're going to be witnessing uh i think we're already witnessing societal collapse um well but anyway and, and i think people just sort of discount the fact that simply diagnosing the anthropological and metaphysical problems and proposing a proper metaphysics and proper anthropology is in itself a first step towards a solution. Yes. Yes. And, and yeah. And, and, and so that if we, I mean, that, that, that if you're thinking those things through correctly, if you're that, that everything will change, um, it'll take time, but, you know, I think both Schindler's really, um, you know, they they would, I would say in my sense, critique integralism because it's not sufficiently radical enough. It's exactly. Not, it's it's it actually in 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 a sort of a paradoxical way adopts the forms of liberalism or adopts <laughs> sort of modernity's forms and doesn't go to the heart of things. Yeah, that's um, D, that's and, DC Schindler's point to uh, yeah. one of them in his book. Yeah, and I and so to me, I mean, that I just and, and I, I I I mean, I think the post liberals are doing some really interesting things, but the integralist piece about sort of seizing the levers of the bureaucracy, I just think is that it, both is just. It makes no sense. I mean, just as a practical yeah, matter, but yeah. it also, it, I don't think it's the way we as Christians are to live in the world. Um, no, it's not. And I'm, you know, I hear the Catholic worker, Dorothy Day, yeah. Peter Moore and devotee is, is going to come out in me, you know, that this has to be conversion has to be uh, evangelical and truth has to be constitutively oriented and related to freedom. The days of overt, strong, coercion uh, and and let's not play fast and loose with the word coercion you know even stop signs are coercive yeah yeah we get that some kinds of coercion are good you know if i teach my child the catechism that's a subtle form of coercion i get that okay let's so let's stop being cute when we mean when we say the days of coercion are over is where you know oh you're not allowed to have that religion in public uh, oh, we'll allow your church to exist, but we're going to tax you into oblivion. Uh, or, you know, we are going to have this list of forbidden books or we're going to have, you know, a morality police. And uh, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Well, anyway, I don't want to get too far into that, but you yeah. get the point. And, and also <laughs> there's the simple fact 
right? It's there now glaring for everybody to see is that in almost every European country where the, uh, to a certain extent, South American, where there was a hard integralism, a hard Catholic integralism, Catholicism is now dead. Yeah. The Irish, the Spanish, the French, okay, wherever there was this powerful union of throne and altar, to speak metaphorically, in these countries, there eventually ended up being this gigantic backlash against what was perceived as clerical oppression, pure yeah. and simple. Well, and actually, you know, Larry, sorry to bring it back to you, but I, I read you have this piece that's uh, that's it's that is lighting things up right now, crit criticizing traditionalists and, and sort of oh, yeah. setting the stage for sort of a true, I think, apologetics. But yes. I think that goes along with what you were just talking about. And, and you know, and that maybe that brings us to Benedict, what he was sort of uh, prophesy or what he saw in 1958 with the new pagans. Um, with that, yes. And, and, yes. and I have yes. always, you know, I, I, I think you've gotten into these debates about um, was the church healthy if it if it collapsed so quickly after Vatican II? And others will say, well, no, it was healthy. But when you just you basically just you know, take off all these tethers, it, it collapsed. I, I'm, I've actually for a long time thought that Vatican II happened too late. That in fact, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, it happened in God's time, but that, that, the, that, it, that in some ways that it was called when it, when it was called, that it was there, so much of the toothpaste was already out of the tube. And, and the, the Ratzinger yeah. talk of 58 reminds me of the story of, um, uh, the founder of Communion Liberation, Luigi Gisani. And there's a great piece by Regis Martin on this, where I think um, when he was just, because I think he's in Communion Liberation, but I think it was 1954, Gisani's on a train in Italy and talking with these young people. And it became clear to him they did not know Christ or the church. I mean, this is this right. is at the height right. of of when the church looks like it's firing on all cylinders. And that was when he made the decision to leave teaching in the seminary and go teach in a high school because he, 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 he could see that the, the jig was up. Uh, yes, and, yes, yes. and uh, so, you know, I think, I think, yeah, the hard, these hard English countries, the, the collapse of Catholicism. I mean, there's, I think there's something that goes along too with sort of a rigid, um, neo-Thomism that you criticize, and you know a lot more about that, but I, I, I kind of look at it from a practical point of view. I would call them sort of what I would call that approach to Catholicism, white-knuckled Catholicism. Yes. It's so afraid of, of uh, that it almost is a fear of freedom, thinks freedom is a dirty word, uh, and, and yeah. cannot sort of cannot integrate the actual um, the actual uh, sort of advances of modernity into it um, and uh, yeah. wants to just go back and sort of have this rote sort of recitation of of different ca uh, catechetical points that will keep us in place. Absolutely. And uh, it's not so much the neo-Thomists that I object object to. Um, a lot of neo-Thomists thought was excellent, but uh, the kind of uh, retrograde standard scholastic neo-scholastic manuals that were being taught yeah. in the seminary and which formed the the sort of spine and backbone for so much uh, magisterial decisions and so on but but yeah but also neo-thomism to the extent that only thomistic categories of thought were allowed into uh, the Catholic theological discussion and if you strayed from thomistic forms of discourse 
uh, you were considered suspect. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I have um, the, the, there is a well-known leading traditionalist author out there that I that I had a certain sort of uh, social media interaction with. And I brought up the Ratzinger article and I made the whole argument about, you know, all of these leading Catholic intellectuals before the council going all the way back to Guardini and people like mm -hmm. this, you know, literary figures like Bernanos, historians like Christopher Dawson were saying the church is sick. They were ringing the alarm bell. There's all kinds of signs that all these visible outward metrics of ecclesial success are a lie, that it's rotting from within and it's a house of cards. And all we need is one darn storm to blow it over. And it's all going to come collapsing down around us. OK, and that's exactly why after the council, it does all come down. You know, the council lit combustibles that were already there. The council was an accelerant. The council did sort of speed things up. But my argument is that had there been no council, things would have decayed anyway, because across the board, across the board, religion has declined in Western culture. Modern Western modernity is corrosive to the spirit, and it has destroyed religious traditions across the board. What makes us think that Catholicism, with its Latin mass, its forbidden index of books, its neo-scholastic manuals, its authoritarian magisterium, was actually going to hold back the forces of the 1960s, the sexual revolution, the internet, the information explosion, and all that? It's insane to think otherwise. And there's this leading trad out there. When I put this argument out, it says, oh, no, no, no. The church wasn't really that sick before the council. Oh, it's just human nature. The council comes along and lifts all these rules, takes all the rules away. And human nature being what it is, human beings just decided to run with their new freedoms in irresponsible ways. Well, really? Well, that is simply making my argument in a different way, because what you're essentially saying is that. All these Christians, these Catholics, were still rather infantilized then, right? right? That what they needed, they absolutely needed a church of authoritarian rules to tell them what to do. Otherwise, they, are, they were going to revert to libidinous activities right, uh, right, right, without. Right. And that's why also all these trads are all into the massive damnata view of hell and stuff. We have to get back to hell. We need to start reemphasizing. And I believe in hell and all that stuff. Sure. You know, uh, the possibility of hell, I'm a Balthazar in that regard, dare we hope, but Baldazar says, okay, yeah, there's still possibility of hell. Sure. But um, they use it as a bludgeon. They use it as part of their ecclesial ecclesiastical ide ideology. You know, yeah, that, when I say, you know, this, and when they go after someone like Bishop Barron, just, oh my. even John Paul II, too. But yeah, I, I think yeah. I, John Paul II, what was he doing going around the world proclaiming Christ? I mean, how could you say that he was indifferent? Yeah, uh, or yeah. The, the Bishop Barron, who has founded this this ministry that is that is all about evangelizing and telling people about the good news, doesn't care about sort of salvation. I, I just don't get it. Yeah, it's it's um, he's their bete noir and they hate yeah. his guts and it's irrational. And it only goes to show that there's a great there's a great deal of anger smoldering in the depths of the trad world. Uh, and my my theory is this. They're not upset that Bishop Barron might be successful. They're upset that he is. And they're upset that he is successful because they don't like the message that he has. And the message that he has is essentially the message of the Second Vatican Council, the Resourcement theologians, John Paul, Benedict, Balthazar, you know, De Lubac, these guys, that's his, and they hate that. 
they hate that. And they, they hate the fact that Barron is now become a successful apologist for that form of Catholicism. And what they want is to return to strict neo-scholastic categories and authoritarian church, lots of hell cowbell, uh, you know, the, the old church of pray, pay and obey Latin mass. Uh, and it, it, it's a romantic fantasy and a rather destructive one. Yeah. Yeah. Go so you're right. The, uh, you go yeah. to my blog and I have a recent piece that's kicked up some dust because I really let the trads have it. Yeah, I think literature, though, can can help us uh, sort of see some of the things that Ratzinger was talking about. I think of a couple different uh, books um, or, or short stories. One, I don't know if you've ever read The Edge of Sadness by Edwin O'Connor. No, never. Uh, beautiful. He he he's more famously known for uh, the last hurrah, which is about the which is sort of a fictional account of the Boston mayor Curly. Uh, the edge of sadness. A, a friend of mine, um, Jared Ortiz, described it as a book about everything and a book about nothing because it really is. It's it really focuses on this recovered alcoholic priest and his relationship with this family that is quasi Kennedy esque. Um, and, but it's, I think written probably around 64 and set in the fifties. And you really see it's, it's a beautiful sociological portrait too, including a great novel of, of what, um, of sort of the lack of any sort of interior, uh, acceptance of the faith by this younger generation. Um, and oh, cool. it really, yeah. it really, sh it, it's in that sort of pre-council time. And it's, it's a really fascinating portrait. And I think you also see this in J.F. Powers stories, um, which are almost exclusively, I think, about priests and, and, uh, but you, you know, the, the church, they're, they're getting sent out to build new churches and stuff, but there's nothing, there's nothing at the core there. Uh, they're, they're lacking. Right. And, right. Uh, and so I think, you know, th those are those are good places. Well, actually, Ralph McInerney had a very interesting it, before he ever wrote in his father Downing Street, he had a book called The Priest. I don't know if you've read this. Yeah. Could have used another book. edit. But, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, you see some of the things that yeah. more is about post-council. But I think you see some of the pre-council on how there was no there was no there there for many of the Catholics. Well, it's so, so true. I mean, why did it just collapse overnight then? Oh, come on, don't give me this. Yeah. I mean, it's also this canard that Second Vatican Council was all loosey goosey and lifted all these. What rules did it lift? Meatless Fridays. OK, we got rid of meatless Fridays. Uh, what are the rules that these rules and regulations that we needed so as to be good people? I, I don't know. The, the Ten Commandments were still there. Yeah. Mass mandatory mass attendance was still there and things like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. it, it's a bit of a mythology. Yeah. We're, you know, one place I'd push back on you is I, I think the Latin mass needs to sort of be rescued from the neoscholastics. So this is where I. I've, I've, I oh, no, no, I agree with that. I love yeah, the Latin. Uh, yeah, thank yeah, you for giving yeah. me an opportunity to clarify yeah. that. I'm not arguing against the Latin mass. I'm arguing against its weaponization yes, as no, a tool. I totally of, uh, agree with that. So go ahead. Yeah, go I, talk I, about I the Latin mass. Of, yeah, no, I just, I, I think I, I went right after the Moto Proprio came out uh, the summer of 2021. And sitting next to me was a good friend uh, who's a fan of yours. And he had he had his spiritual reading next to him was Aiden Nichols, uh, Balthazar for Thomas. That was, and oh. you know, this is a guy. So, the, and I, so I know many of these people who are sort of resource mocked, um, uh, convinced, if you will, but but uh, you know, look at the way the the reform was implemented, and I think this is where where Benedict was so, you know, just so so brutally honest that it was just it was done in such a bad way, 
and yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and Benedict uh, was was very enamored of, uh, of Monsignor Klaus Gomber, uh, who had some very, I think, significant critiques of both the reform and and just and sort of the the the, the new uh, the new right. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it, the weaponization and sort of the ideology that surrounds it that, that needs to be separated. And I don't know how you do that, but uh, to me, there's an article I've. I've been toying about in my mind that uh, the Latin mass needs communio and communio needs a Latin mass or something like oh, that. I, I agree. just, I, yeah. I've, I've talked a little, just, just because I think yeah. there's, I, the thing that bothers me is that the people, and this, this is something Benedict pushed against all the time is like that somehow the, the, that the Latin mass is incompatible with, with, with the second Vatican council. Now, certainly the Vatican Council called for reforms, right? But but how does yeah. the mass that formed all the theologians who and the the archbishops and bishops who were the fathers of that council, how can it be incompatible? And and that's maybe that brings us back to Benedict and just his his push against this idea of rupture. Continuity, there's yeah. there's there's reform and continuity. There there is rupture, but the this 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 full rupture where the that 1965, we somehow have a new church that came into being. I mean, I think to me that has been um, yeah, that was one of his great legacies. That he was trying yeah. to help help us understand that what came before and what came after are united. There's an interior unity. Oh, that's so true. You know, and it goes to uh, I, I was in a little social media debate with uh, this guy who's a really interesting traditionalist, actually, uh, intelligent guy. Uh, I don't want to name his name, but anyway, he we were having this debate about Sacrosanctum con Concilium, you know, the yeah. very first document of the Second Vatican Council on reforming the liturgy. And his point was uh, it's ambiguous because it leaves all kinds of it makes all of these sorts of broad statements about Latin should have pride of place. But we need we do we do need reforms here and we need reforms there. But it sort of leaves things kind of open ended. And I agree with that. He refers yeah. to these as ambiguities that allowed the Trojan horse of horrible, you know, distortions to come in. Uh, and I don't want to put words in the mouth, but I think in so many words, that's what he meant. Uh, but the, I think your point is, well, and I think he would actually agree with this, is that the reason why they just sort of left things open ended is because they understood that the, the floor of the council was not the place to work out a new liturgy. They right. knew that that was going to be the fruit of a later post conciliar commission, that they were going to leave it to them. And they didn't dream in their wildest imaginings that you, they were going to get a liturgy like the mass of Paul VI. They just assumed it was going to be the Latin mass that they all knew that they all loved with some tweaks to it, with some yeah. upgrades, maybe a little more liberal use of scripture, a more little liberal use of the vernacular, you know, and so but but this wholesale, this wholesale change of liturgy is not what the council fathers expected. Now, I personally, I love the Latin mass. I don't know why we can't have a pluralism of rights. I, I'm resolutely opposed to Trizioni's custodes as a mean spirited, vindictive draconian attempt to repress a genuine movement within the church of the Holy Spirit. Here we've got this silly synodal way going on. We're listening to the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit seems to sound like Oprah Winfrey for crying out loud. <laughs> I mean, uh, the Holy Spirit is only drifting leftward, apparently, on issues, you know, uh, all trendy and woke these days. But when you see a real genuine movement of the spirit amongst all these very faithful and devout Catholics that simply want to attend the traditional mass of the ages, so to speak. No, we can't have that. 
The Holy Spirit isn't speaking there. You're you're backwardists, as Pope Francis says, backwardists. And he slaps them down. Don't talk to me then about peripheries and margins and accompaniment and discernment, because it's a lie. You don't mean it, Holy Father. You don't mean it. What you mean is no enemies to the left of me, and I'm going to crush the right. Now, that's me on a horrible riff right now, but I'm in a bad mood right now with regard to a lot of this stuff. And I'm very anti-trad, but I'm also very pro uh, Latin mass. And I attend an Anglican ordinariate parish myself. Personally, I, I prefer mass in the vernacular. I do. And I like yeah. the, the, the canon to be recited out loud. Uh, and and I, I like the dialogical responses from the congregation. I like all that. But the Anglican right uh, usage that I go to is lots of chant, incense, uh, mass ad orientum. Uh, you receive communion, kneeling and altar rail on the tongue with intinction, uh, a, a choir. You get you get the picture. Yeah, no, right? I've been to an Anglican ordinary mass and it was incredibly beautiful. And I think I think if that were the mass of Paul the sixth, there'd probably be a lot, a lot fewer issues. But I'm also think, going back to the council, what you were saying in terms of the document, they also were issuing it against the background of how is liturgical development done. It was it had always been done organically, and 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 yes, I yes. That, that I really don't think you can look at what happened after the council was organic. Certainly, I mean, it's not wholesale; they're not just making it up. But I read that great biography and actually did a review of that biography about Bunini by um, Eve's. Chiron, the the French author, yep. yeah, own, and uh, it, I don't know how to pronounce fair. it. Yeah, he's very very fair, and it's just. But one of the things that comes through is that Bunini just didn't have a lot of human experience. It's like sometimes the, some of the things he thought of and wanted to do. It's like, are you do you understand human beings that we need to touch and feel and smell? And it's just, it, it yeah. just, it, yeah. and I, it just yeah. very odd. So. No, but I but it'd be yeah, sorry, I interrupted. Well, you. No, no, no. I, I'm glad you stopped me because I shouldn't be so pointedly. Emo I mean, you know, just back from Benedict funeral. We could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know? I would. I'd love and, to hear and, about and, what and I, I, I'm just grown increasingly impatient with the current pontificate. And uh, I apologize to any of my listeners who maybe thinks I'm a, I'm a bit untoward towards the Holy Father. Uh, but I, I have some I have some griefs <laughs> and, uh, and and some complaints. Um, well, I you know, if I had the chance to sit down with Pope Francis, I would just want to I want to ask him. He had that. Remember that beautiful sermon here, homily he gave before the conclave where he talked about how we need to not be a self-referential church. Yes. Uh, and, it, and it's uh, yes, this. Yes, and yes, then what, yes. And, and, and it just, at least from my 30,000 foot view, it seems like so much of the last 10 years has been relitigating questions that we all thought were done and yeah, asked yeah. and answered. And so I just, it seems like yeah. we've, he's at cross yeah. purposes with the thing that he, that, that homily that he gave before the conclave was so beautiful. And I have, uh, I have a great admiration for many, many, many things that Pope Francis has written. Uh, the Laudato Si, I think, is, yeah. is wonderful. I think it's just wonderful. Uh, and many of his speeches and homilies, I think, are rather profound. And the speech you reference about a non-self-referential church is absolutely true. And he's absolutely correct. We need to be a church that goes to the margins and the peripheries that accompanies people. Heck, I'm a Catholic worker. OK, I get that. Uh, my complaint, though, is then um, with with number one, who he is empowered in the church. Uh, he's re like you said, he's re-empowered 
it seems like refugees from the 70s, mentally speaking. So we're relitigating. I mean, how do you avoid being a self-referential church when you promote into positions of authority people who want to do nothing but constantly reflect on what the church is? And, and in the sense of wanting to change it. And you don't want to be a self-referential church, but we're going to have a synod on synods. We're going to have a big meeting on meetings to figure out how many times the church ought to have meetings. I, I mean, come on. Uh, why not have a, a synod on liturgy and, and duke it out once and for all on all these liturgical questions? Why not have a synod on on world poverty or things like this? You know, I, I don't get it. But anyway, yeah. I don't want to go. Yeah, I don't want to get. I'd love to hear your experience in Rome for the, the, the funeral. I mean, what were you seeing? What were you hearing? Yeah, I think that being there was different from watching it on television. As I was standing there in the fog and the cold and the mist, uh, there was a real reverence amongst the people there. Uh, I think the funeral mass itself was a kind of clunker as, as papal funeral masses go. It was it seemed to me rather perfunctory. Uh, maybe that's what Benedict was preferred. Pope Francis is old and can't stand, you know, Cirque du Soleil, five hour long liturgies with all the pyrotechnics. Yeah. OK, so I get all that. So I'm, I'm not going to go on and on and on about that. But I do think it was a rather perfunctory thing. Uh, and so I was upset about that. But but I would say that what did not come through via television that you experienced in person was the there was a profound and palpable sense of reverence and and and, and deep, deep devotion to Pope Benedict amongst the 100,000 people or so that were there. It was a very somber, quiet, prayerful crowd. And I wrote about that for Catholic World Report. It was a crowd of tears. Um, there, there were very few dry eyes, my own included, when they were, you know, carrying Benedict's casket for the last time through the, those mm. big doors of St. Peter's uh, and uh, the bells and so on. You know, it, it, it was I, I was moved by it. I thought his papal funerals wet. It was a bit perfunctory, but nevertheless, who cares? Uh, uh, the people that were there prayed for the soul of the Holy Father. I was happy and privileged to be there. Many thanks to people that donated money to me for me to be there because I couldn't afford it. Um, so, yeah, that you was my inspire me to at least look. I looked up the prices for flights and uh, I I know I, I, <laughs> I encouraged you. I said, Connor, get on a plane, get on a plane. You know, yeah. and it, it wasn't cheap. Airfare is not cheap these days. And airlines have given up any, any pretense that they care about their customers anymore. So air, and I, you know, I'm still suffering from the bronchial infection that I picked up somewhere in Rome from yeah. rubbing shoulders. But I I am deeply and profoundly grateful to God and to my fellow Catholics who donated money to me. Uh, I won't mention their names so as to embarrass them. Uh, but they made it possible for me to be there and, and to report and to write from there. Uh, and I, I just thought it was a great, great privilege to be there. And I'm well aware that it was a problem not saying, hey, look, everybody, I got to go. No, no. I wish everybody could have been yeah. there. But I think that goes back to the uh, how you started the show. I mean, now with Cardinal Pell, Pope Benedict, David L. Schindler. I mean, I, I feel like I've lost like I pal I didn't know as well. I just admired. I read his first uh, his first prison journal and I have the other two. I mean, but spiritual fathers. And it's just uh, I, yeah. it's almost I, I feel almost bereft. Well, yeah, um, my my respect for Cardinal Pell increased over the years. I was never way back in the day when he was still, you know, down there in Australia as an active Australian bishop, Sydney, Melbourne. 
I was never a huge Cardinal Pell fan. At first, he struck me as a kind of status quo, institutional company man, kind of neocon sort of uh, Catholic prelate. You know, okay, salt of the earth, brick and mortar kind of guy. Yeah. Knows his knows what the church needs. Okay, solid. He's orthodox. So I respected that. Um, And then it did sort of come out that maybe he didn't handle some sex abuse cases very well. On the other hand, once once it became apparent that this was a major crisis, Cardinal Pell in Australia became one of the leading advocates for survivors of any prelate in, in the world. Uh, so uh, there are those out there now criticizing him for criticizing the Pope and using his past against him in that regard. And I think that's shameful. I think it's very shameful because Cardinal Pell was one of the leaders uh, as time went on in, in the survivors movement. Now, but by my respect for him grew uh, as he was falsely accused of sexual abuse himself, how he handled his imprisonment. His prison diaries are magnificent. Um, and then his behind the scenes leadership uh, in the church once he was released from prison. I can't divulge a lot of sources, of course, and so forth. Uh, but Cardinal Pell was active behind the scenes, um, you know, and getting some things done in a positive way for the church. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, I don't know if it's a good thing that now all these you right. know, things have come out right out right at his death, you know, negative things he has said. But look, I've just said some negative things about Pope Francis and Cardinal Pell has a right to his opinion as well. And to a certain extent, my respect for him has grown because maybe just maybe even while we maintain respect for the office, the Petrine office, the respect for the office of the papacy, um, you know, let me just put it this way. The Ten Commandments say, honor your father and your mother. And we should honor our father and our mother, and we should honor the Pope. He's our Holy Father. But the Ten Commandments don't mean that if your father is doing something really wrong, that you can never criticize him. Uh, that cannot be, I mean, you, you would criticize your father. We've all criticized our dads. <laughs> I've criticized yeah. my dad. But if you love your father, you do so respectfully. And, and so I see no problem whatsoever that here we had a cardinal of the church who decided to set aside ecclesiastical protocol, ecclesiastical convention, ecclesiastical jargon, and to just speak his mind and to say there are major problems going on in this papacy and they have to be addressed. And, and I gained a great deal of respect for him for having uh, the courage to say that. Yeah, well, and it, it actually, I mean, it, it kind of harkens back to some of the the various bishops calling each other out back in the age of the fathers, I think, right? I mean, it's, oh, yeah. I, mean, I think we have yeah. this sense of, of we can never, we can never raise a voice against, I mean, not that you and I are bishops, but I mean, that he's, he's a cardinal archbishop of the, of the church. There's, he has a certain duty if he sees things that, um, uh, seem out of line to, to call them out. And, and if anything, yeah. I mean, that seems to be, I mean, you, you, you read about some of those, those early councils and, and what was going on. I mean, this, this where maybe we're getting a little bit back more back to that than, than what well, we, yeah, you know, yeah. It, was, it was a little more rough and tumble. Uh, yeah. and, and now, um, you know, the, 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 the bubble has been burst, so to speak with regard to a certain papal, 
uh, decorum, you know, how we're supposed to, you know, always have deference towards the Pope, deference towards the Pope. Uh, and I'm guilty as charged. I mean, back in the days of John Paul Benedict, I was, you know, this fire breathing kind of guy. We need to obey the Pope. Stop all this dissent from papal teaching and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I still believe that uh, there's not a single real um, sort of moral and, and theological teaching of Pope Francis that I think we should be dissenting from. Uh, I don't think it's a good practice at all to dissent from magisterial teaching. Uh, but there are lesser level magisterial functions of the Pope. And I think something like a traditionis custodes is a, is not much of a magisterial document in terms of doctrine or teaching. It's just a discipline kind of document. And I think those are much more open to being criticized respectfully. Yeah, I think the, the key there is love and respect, right? I mean, again, what you said, he is our, Pope Francis is our Holy Father. And, and uh, yeah, and I, and I admit, sometimes I violate that. Sometimes, you know, I'm an emotional guy. I, you know, I'm volatile. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. All right. And so when I get on a roll, I'm a singularly unfiltered person. You know, it's like, <laughs> you pile, you know, you know, so and then I have to dial it back later on and say, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't have called you that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think I've, uh, I've gotten better over time with Pope Fr I, I, I was. I said some things early in his papacy that I regret. And I just, I, at this point, try to pray for him. And, and uh, um, you know, I, I, I want yeah, I know the, 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 the guy who runs that podcast, uh, Michael Lofton, Reason and Theology. Yeah. Uh, I was on his show a couple of times and, and I like Michael. Uh, he's a little too, I don't know, standard Catholic apologetics and that kind of stuff for my taste. But nevertheless, he does good work. He's a good guy. Uh, but he he's gone, I think, I think he said uh, like a, a moratorium on Pope Francis criticism uh, simply because he doesn't see any real purpose or value in it anymore. Um, you know, I, I, there might be some there might be some value in that. Maybe we need we all need to dial it back a bit and just let the pope be the pope. Uh, but I find myself constitutively unable to do that, <laughs> you know, and and uh, I also don't know if that's necessarily I, I get the motivation of saying, let's let's just dial it. But yeah, there's too yeah. much polemics out there. Uh, but nevertheless, there are criticisms that need to be made because there are very serious things at stake here. And this upcoming I mean, one of the things that get back to Cardinal Pell was, you know, he pointed out that this synodal process is a toxic nightmare. It's introduced a toxic poison into the church. Now, those are strong words, but yeah. they're also words that I completely agree with. And I think, therefore, that this whole synodal process is open to tremendous criticism and it needs to be criticized. What do you yeah. think? Well, I, I can speak from my my local experience because I was part of the uh, committee here that helped run the synod at the local diocesan. And um I read every single report that came out from all the listening sessions. And frankly, what has come out from this continental phase seems uh, seems to diverge greatly from what I saw, at least here locally. And I can only speak to that. The words, I, I was amazed. The words that came up the most were prayer, reverence, silence. There, there wasn't a lot of pushback on on church teaching. There was, hey, maybe we could we could do this better. Um, some of the neuralgic issues, 
Um, but yeah. I was sort of amazed as I read these things to to see there was a hunger uh, among the people who had participated for more reverent liturgy, for more more prayer and adoration. And I and I really went in not knowing what to expect. Um, so I and I think you've said this, Larry. I mean, like the church is synodal. I mean, there is a there's an and so the, yeah. there's nothing. Um, you know, at the most basic level, that's a problem with this. But where I get I get fearful is when you have people who, uh, you know, like Austin Ivory, for instance, um, who was part of writing this continental phase. Like he he wrote an article about it, about his experience. And he 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 credited the expansion of the church in the early centuries to the sort of processes that he was engaged in right now. Right. And and, and and I'm just my my jaw dropped open. I, this is this is nothing, nothing yeah. like the early. Church. He also described it as the greatest exercise in listening that the church has ever engaged in, which of course is risible nonsense. Uh, not your ex, your experience notwithstanding, because I'm glad that it was a positive yeah. one. Statistics show us that only about one percent of Catholics worldwide have participated in the synodal process. I would wager this that about 90% of the Catholics in the world have no idea that there is a synodal process. Right. Uh, and only 1% participated. Uh, and, and so it's a, and then of those participants, uh, how curated to use an overused word these days, how curated are these responses going to be as they filter up to the continental phase and beyond? Yeah. I'm cynical. And I think a lot of other people are cynical uh, that given the fact that this cannot possibly really be uh, a, a means of gauging what the vast majority of Catholics want or the movement of the Holy Spirit, the question becomes, is this simply an exercise in bureaucratic ledger, ledger domain? Is, is, mm -hmm. it, is it a kind of ruse? Is, is it a kind of false democratic pretense uh, in order to push forward a different agenda? And of course, you see that's certainly true with the Germans. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's true. But but is that true everywhere? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea what the synodal process looks like in Catholic churches in India or Argentina or Australia or the Philippines, you know, or in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I, yeah. I have no idea. Well, None. I so think I'm just I'm just yeah, I'm just talking off the top of my head here. Go no, ahead. Oh, and I think one of the concerns we talked about earlier is present there. The, this this uh, process, does it dissipate our evangelical? efforts and energy yeah i mean if we're, we're talking about all these internal things uh and, and not i mean we're, we're finite in terms of the we've got a finite amount of time and we can only uh, focus on so much stuff does it take away from our efforts to actually go out to the peripheries and to to <coughs> bind up the wounds that are real that you you saw teaching people at the sales that yeah. i see every day in the world yeah. And that's my fear that it just it's sort of it's it, it sort of dissipates this evangelical spirit and energy. Uh, and of course, that it also can be used for for bad purposes. Um, and which you means, know, I think that's. Yeah. Which means we need to see the raw data. Uh, in yeah. other words, Traditiones Custodes was predicated in the uh, on, on this survey of bishops that was sent out. And, and then Pope Francis comes out and says, OK, based on the responses I got from this survey of bishops, I've decided to do the following sort of limitations on the on the old Latin mass. And there were many, many voices out there saying, well, let's see the raw data. 
let's see the result of those. It could remain anonymous. Take the names yeah. off. But please give us the, the statistical breakdown, the commentary, what the bishops actually said. Show us the data. And the Vatican refused to do so. It still has there's no transparency right. there at all, which, of course, it, it may be nothing. There may be nothing to it other than simple Vatican incompetence bureaucratically. But it does raise suspicions, right? Why don't you want to show us what the bishops right. actually said? So I want to know, are all the results of these various synodal gatherings, are they being actually tabulated? Are they being preserved? Are they being saved? Are there going to be files where all this stuff can be available to researchers? Right. Because, and because this is important, because as Austin Ivory says, he goes, this is actually the movement of the Holy Spirit that we're watching here. He said that in the article. This is the right. movement of the Holy Spirit. OK, movement of the Holy Spirit. Show me what the Holy Spirit has said. Show me the raw data. Don't give me your curated summaries of all of this stuff. Right. I well, want I think we. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Larry. No, no, I, I'm done. Go ahead. Well, I just say we should always probably be dubious or at least raise questions when the Holy Spirit seems to be saying the exact same the thing that uh, bourgeois Christianity says. Yes. Um, and, and you know, I, I have the same reaction to Austin Ivory's sort of invocation of the Holy Spirit as I do to people who are, you know, I, I, in, in certain circles that I run in, like they, they basically heard this Holy Spirit speak to them in prayer uh, and sometimes you want to ask, was that actually just the burrito you had at lunch? I mean, it's just, I know, it's, exactly. Just, yeah, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's called yeah, a discernment right. of spirits. It's called a discernment yeah. of spirits. The great saints have written volumes on, on how does one progress in the spiritual life to discern God's will in your life? That is not an easy thing to do. And because you have to purge yourself of the delusions and self-deceptions that sin creates within you, the false notions of what it is you really want that sin creates within you. All right. And that's sometimes a lifetime of penance and prayer and work. But no, we're going to get together in a church basement. And we're going to vote on whether or not we want women priests. And there, there's the Holy Spirit talking. Uh, it, it's just such a it's a slap in the face as to what uh, what what yeah what what this really is you know like you said whether it's that burrito that 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 I had for lunch you know it, it is it's like these television evangelists I'm getting a word of knowledge I'm getting a word of knowledge <laughs> Donald Trump's going to be reelected in a landslide I'm getting a word of knowledge well of course it's not true and everybody forgets that word of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a, there's a tendency, I think, in many different quarters in the church to over spiritualize things. So, uh, you know, they, you know, you may be doing you may be part of a, some good work and there's something that, uh, that becomes a barrier to it happening. That could be your own incompetence. I mean, you might stub your toe because you're a klutz or it could be the devil doing it. But I mean, there, I, sometimes there's yeah. you are too quick to ascribe things to the Holy Spirit and to and to the evil one. When when we, there's plenty of things that we do that could be what what are actually uh, contributing to those things. Actually, since I mean, wait till you get to my my age. You're still a young and Connor. I mean, I'm 64. And the fact is, with age does come a certain wisdom. And I think right. that what that wisdom is, is a realization of, of what an idiot you've been most of your life, uh, how you have mistaken so very often what it is that you think God wanted you to do when it was really just what you wanted to do all along. Uh, and you, then you go back and you can write your own spiritual autobiography and call it, dear me, <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, you know, uh, because of all the goof ups you've made. And then, then then to realize, well, then I need to have a certain self-critical skepticism. Right. Uh, but you know what? On the flip side, on a very personal level, it is great to have a prayer life where you're actually having a conversation with Christ and the saints. I mean, St. Ignatius mm-hmm. of Loyola called it the colloquy method of prayer. Uh, where you actually pray via having conversation. And I, I have a real, I used to work with this woman, you know, just a classic stereotype, you know, old Baptist lady. It was always like, thank you, Jesus, for this. Thank you, Jesus, for that. You know, uh, thank you, for Jesus, for this cup of coffee. It got a little tiresome after a while, but actually it was really childlike and refreshing because there was a person who had a real relationship with Christ. So I'm not here to disparage people discerning uh, the consolations and the movements of the spirit in their life and their detection of, of God's presence in their life. Uh, what I, what I'm saying is we have to be very, very careful of saying that the Holy spirit is being very specific now about what it is the church ought to be doing based on some private opinion that I've just had. Well, sure. And you see that, you see that all the time in marriage, right? The, uh, how many times have you uh, heard an idea that comes from, not from your wife, but your wife has said it 20 times. You hear it from someone else. Like, well, I think that actually is the way I should go. You come back, you tell your wife, and she's like, I've been telling you that over (laughs) and over and over again. And it's, you just can't get through your thick skull and you hear it from someone else. Um, But, or, or you do the exact opposite thing that you're told to do, uh, but by your spouse who, who has wisdom. And, and then you, you finally, after the 25th time you've screwed that thing up, you realize, you know, maybe, maybe she's onto something. Yeah. Maybe she's right about yeah. that. Dad gummit, dad gummit. Yeah. And, uh, uh, God writes straight with crooked lines. And my life is, is testimony to that. Um, oh, you um, had a beautiful blog post about that. Um, when you went up to, uh, and I had missed it somehow, but when you went up for the retreat that was uh, at the Abbey uh, led, of the Genesee, yeah, yeah, because I, I, a friend of mine had picked up the 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 first, and I have it now, the first volume of Reflections, but is it Father Erasmo? Is that uh, he Erasmo? Yeah, a yeah, yeah, four volume set on Matthew. He's thanking his wife, and I was like, I, but I, he's a, and you kind of talked about that, and 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 yes, God can. Yeah, yeah. It can can really uh, can work in mysterious ways. Yeah, he's married, had kids. Now he's uh, you know priest and a monk and Father translator, Simeon, right? Is that Father, Father is, Simeon, yeah. translator of Balthazar? I mean, true story. When Father Fessio started Ignatius Press, Father Simeon before he was Father Simeon, he was just Erasmo. Uh, was uh, I think at Emory University or yeah, something? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he wanted to, uh, I think, translate some Balthazar. So he just cold wrote Hans Urs von Balthazar. He just wrote Balthazar a little postcard, a little letter and said, yeah, this is who I am. I'm, you know, I'm interested in your theology. I'm proficient in languages. I, I could probably translate some of your stuff if you want to. So then Father Fessio is, you know, talking with Hans Urs von Balthazar and about, OK, starting Ignatius Press, we want to translate some of your stuff. And Balthazar tells Fessio about Erasmo and says, right. oh, there's this guy who wrote to me and you should look into him. So actually, yeah, Father Simeon, Erasmo, Levi, Mary Caucus uh, translated Balthazar's little book, Heart of the World. And that yeah. was the very, very first Balthazar book published by Ignatius Press. Great little poetic book. Uh, and, and I have uh, it. I've not read it, but it's on my short list. Great spiritual reading. You should read yeah. it some length. It's 
it's vintage Balthazar. Um, I like, I like it very much. Well, uh, okay. So we've talked a a great about many, many things, Connor, and we've now been at it for about an hour and 20 minutes. Hang on. I should have one of those buttons that I could push that mutes. Well, actually I could, I could probably mute my sound every time I have to cough, uh, for my viewers. Yes. I still have. It's it's more, it's, it's more real. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've often thought about upgrading my camera. I do have this nice, sure digital condenser mic, you know, that's professional and all, but, uh, you know, upgrading the camera, getting like a fancy background, some intro music, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I've got all these viewers and listeners that no, no, we actually kind of like the Luddite quality of it all. <laughs> you know, the sort of amateur hour Wayne's world in the basement kind of <laughs> party on Garth uh, sort of quality to these things. I don't know. Maybe that's just an excuse for me to be lazy about all of this. I wouldn't be able to do any of this without my tech guy, Andrew Nydek, and he's great. Um, but anyway, uh, do you have any? We probably should uh, sign off unless you have something more, some other topic that you want to bring well, up. Well, no, we- I just I think of the the um, you know some of the things you and I both experienced in the last month that are they're sort of kind of amazing. I mean, we, yeah, in, yeah. in terms of the the or two months, David Schindler's uh, funeral. But I mean, you think of the connections of many of the people we've been talking about. Uh, I mean, I, I, I got there the day before uh, the funeral and was able to um, pray at David's um, side. It was at, at Dave Jr.'s house. And you saw these yeah. pictures around the coffin, him with Balthazar, him with oh, yeah. Ratzinger, him with, with John Paul II. Hey, here, here's this man who was involved with all these people his funeral uh homily is preached by father fessio who has been his friend for 50 years and who yeah. also basically has you know done this great service to the american church or the english world to give us these translations uh then we have you know benedict who was fessio's um i think he was his dissertation advisor yes. on would yes. be right on Lubach or ball i can't remember but i mean it's these connections and it so it does seem like there's an era that's ending and also i i i can't help again that day i don't want to overread the spirits but just to think that that this is presaging some 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 difficult times ahead actually yeah um, and uh i i'm glad you brought this up because i i don't i i think we uh, it's important to sort of uh, to a- end with this, perhaps, is that um, in a conversation with David C. Schindler, the younger, in a previous YouTube video, maybe six months ago or so, he and Mike Hanby and Hauser and I were talking about how uh, one of the grave dangers right now is that given the the predominance in the social media and in many other ways of the debate between the the, the, the resurgent progressive Catholics and now the surging traditionalist Catholics, that the resourcement theological Mm. communio voice is being eclipsed. It's being forgotten. Uh, One of the reasons why I have been told anyway, why my my blog kind of went viral in in a miniature sort of way, and it has. I'm not bragging. It just has. Uh, And no one was more shocked than I was. No one. I thought my blog would last three months. It'd get two views and I would say, okay, I'm done with that. It didn't. It took off. And it still astounds me because I'm no great shakes. Who the heck am I? Um, and yet the reason why it took off is because what it, it just didn't even dawn on me. Nobody knows about communio theology. The stuff right. I'm writing 
seems boilerplate to me, to you, to to the people in the circles we move in. It seems boilerplate. I toss it out there as some of the fruit of my decades of reflecting on communio theology. And all of a sudden it, 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 it lights on fire. And it only goes to show how necessary I think resource month theology is, how necessary communio theology is, because it really is the theology of the council, the theology of John Paul, the theology of Benedict, the theology that makes sense of the church in the modern world. Traditionalism, as I said in my blog yesterday, is a dead end. Progressivism is clearly a dead end. Uh, And so the point is, you are absolutely right. With the death of like Schindler and Benedict, it seems like an era has passed, but we can't allow that to be the case. We have to pass the torch. Mm. Uh, and that's why I blog. It's why I do the podcast. It's why I interview people like you. Uh, it's why I blog against traditionalism and against progressives, uh, because I'm trying to clear the path for a proper reception of resourcement and communal theology, because it's not dead, but it's in danger of being eclipsed in the current chaos. Yeah. And so yeah. I think to honor the memory of David L. Schindler and to honor the memory of Pope Benedict, I think we need to uh, do our best to further the, the cause of communio theology in the church today. Yeah, well, I think that's a great way to end. And I think that's that theology that will allow us to do the very thing. I, I, if you if I, you give me a sound, the, the faith and faith in the future, you know, that book by. Benedict, let me just grab this. Oh, um, yeah, I know it. Uh, I just maybe we could end on the line there from um, it's at the very final essay where he's talking about the church becoming a more spiritual church. Oh, um, yeah. From the crisis of today, the church of tomorrow will emerge a church that has lost much. She will become small and will have to start afresh more or less from the beginning. She will no longer be able to inhabit many of the edifices she built in prosperity. As the number of her adherents diminishes, so will she lose many of her social privileges. In contrast to an earlier age, she will be seen much more as a voluntary society, entered only by a free decision. And a small so- as a small society, she will make a much bigger demands on the initiative of her in- individual members. Then he goes on to say the church will be a more spiritual church, not presuming upon a political mandate, flirting as little with the left as with the right. Um, And it will lead to a trial of sifting. But then a great power will flow from a more spiritualized and simplified church. Men in a totally planned world will find themselves unspeakably lonely. If they have completely lost sight of God, they will feel the whole horror of their poverty. Then they will discover the little flock of believers is something wholly new. They will discover it as a hope that is meant for them, an answer for which they have always been searching in secret. So Amen. he talks about the crisis that will come, but it will. there's fruit that will come from the crisis. And I think the resourcement theology yes. gives us the ability to be that it, small flock. That's it, it gives us the theological tools to do that. Hey, thank you, Connor. Thank you for that well, quote. Thank you. That yeah. is the perfect way. Perfect way yeah. to end. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you, Larry. I appreciate you having me on. It's a great honor. It's uh, we've well, corresponded maybe we'll, for many years, and and, and yeah. now to have maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do it again when Hauser uh, can join us. Oh and, yeah, that bomb. I'd love to be on with Hauser. Yeah, that, that, you're, you're that, Ed McMahon, or what? Uh, that's I think of him as your Ed McMahon. Yeah, you know, lately, you uh, at least have him announce you at the beginning. Here's yeah. Larry. <laughs>
I think uh, he's Tonto to my Kimasabi. Yeah, as, uh, that's I think Hauser's favorite thing. But anyway, yeah, I, lo- I love Rodney. He's a great, great uh, friend, uh, really smart guy. And I miss him when he's not on these uh, podcasts with me. Hey, but anyway, best to your wife, Laurel, and uh, talk to you soon. All right. OK, thanks. Larry. Thanks again. All right. Now, wait a minute. I have to figure out how to uh, shut this thing off. Uh, wait a minute. OK. I'm not seeing. Wait a minute. I, what is going on here? Okay.